Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Secret Resume podcast, hosted by me, Melody Moore. In this podcast, we explore the people, places, and experiences that have shaped my guests, those which have influenced who they are as people and where they are in their work life today. You can listen in as we have a rich exploration of often unexamined and undiscussed but very important aspects of their lives, or as I like to call it, their secret resume. My guest today is Robbie Swale. Robbie is a leadership coach, author and podcaster whose work focuses on creativity, leading with honour and the craft of coaching. He is the host of two podcasts, the Coach's Journey podcast and the 12-Minute Method podcast and the author of the 12-Minute Method series of books, including How to Start When You're Stuck and How to Create the Conditions for Great Work. So Robbie Swale, welcome to the Secret Resume podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to have you here. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me and inviting me to do this slightly unusual thing and think about my life in new ways. It's, it's been really lovely. Brilliant. And Robbie sent me a picture of his um, I think it's a picture of your inside of your brain, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is a little bit, but it, although I feel like my brain is even messier than the the big flip chart paper that I sent you. I got the sanitized version. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Robbie, let's start with who are you? What is it that you do? And then we're going to go right back to the beginning um, and talk about some of the things that have influenced you over your life. Yeah. So, well, the way that I introduce myself these days, like the list gets longer because I keep doing new things which is very nerve-wracking often while doing them and then fun sometimes to reflect on so most of my work is as a, a leadership coach but I'm also these days a podcaster I have two podcasts and an author of four books that, that have been published uh, the last the most recent of which was published in late 2022 and when I talk about my work which does it does is related to the the things we're going to talk about uh, I think in this conversation I usually talk about kind of three things that I'm interested in so I'm interested in what I think about these days is leading with honor or leadership with honor and leadership, you know, the work that I do there is mostly where my coaching happens. It's, it's where a lot of my kind of, what do you call it? Income generating parts of my business happen. And what I mean by that leading with honor, we might get into, but really, you know, it's often people, other people would talk about it as values led or like it's all that values work. It's, it's, you know, there would be clients. The, the time, one of the times I had that thought was it'd be clients series of clients coming to me. And really what we'd be talking about is how do you succeed? How do I get to the next level of success without having to compromise who I am? I've just kept having in different ways that thing. And for reasons we might get to that, that, that word honor came to me. I'm really interested in the craft of coaching. So I do work with other coaches. I think that, that coaching as a, as a leadership skill, as a, a kind of craft of and a profession has a huge amount to offer lots of the challenges that we all face in the world and the world faces. And so I do some work supporting other coaches. That's where one of my podcasts, The Coach's Journey, comes in. I have a community of coaches that, that I work with to support them with their businesses and, and their lives. And then I'm interested in creativity. And that's where my books come in, the 12-minute method series. And, and the idea there is I'm really interested in why do we sometimes have these things that we want to do for a long time? and we don't do them, how do we help people bridge that gap? And that's, yeah, like I say, the series of books, and also there's a 12-minute method podcast as well. And that's mostly how I talk about my work these days. I've just started reading your books, as I said, and I'm feeling like it's a great big kick up the arse, actually. <laughs> so what, uh, that's what I would hope. That's what, what I'm I, feeling. <laughs> in fact, uh, Melody, if you could, if you could uh, add some Amazon reviews that say, <laughs> just to say, this book feels like a great big kick up the arse, that's like perfect, because that's exactly 
what I would hope happens because some of the books that have had a big impact on me have felt exactly like that. And it is like when you read, so, so often we aspire to be the things we admire in different ways and getting that book that, you know, is so stark and in my face that I have to change yeah. how I am for the better, then that's like a wonderful thing. Yes. Not always fun at the time, but to look no. back on always a wonderful thing. No, it gets to the sort of, um, for me anyway, the guilt and, but also there is that kind of his, someone who's done this in a very practical way why don't i just do it in a very practical way and <laughs> it's like that how do you eat an elephant a teaspoon at a time they feel like teaspoons what you're talking about yeah it was mm. not just a, it was a carrot and stick let's say was yeah. my experience <laughs> so Good. far perfect okay brilliant thank you really interested in, in what you do actually i'm interested in that coaching so would you describe yourself as well as a coach's coach yeah i mean i'd say that the the, the reason i said i think when i introduced myself there i usually do a leadership coach is because that's where most of my coaching happens but what happened to me was i i wrote an article about how i'd grow my coaching business and it went mini viral like for me it's the, still the most read article i've uh, written 10 over 10,000 clicks or whatever across various platforms. I'm sure I haven't checked that recently, but I'm sure it's something like that. And it, because it went mini viral, I ended up with a following. Um, and then because I'm so interested in coaching, I kept writing and then in the end podcasting about coaching. And so it kind of happened a little by accident, but I love conversations about the craft of coaching. When I'm running coaching training, I love it. When I'm doing supervision, I love it. Yeah, when we have these absolutely wonderful calls as part of the Coaches Journey community, which is the community for coaches that I run, where I am a, a coach of coaches. And they're just wonderful calls are some of the absolute most beautiful times that I have in my mm. month because there's something about the people with those commitments to the things that the coaches, at least that I'm working with, have have commitments to and ability to reflect and grow together and connection as a group. And it so I, I love that work, although I would say it's kind of it's not the center of my business. It's something that I don't, you know, especially having heard myself just describe it then, I don't think it's anything I'm going to knock on the head anytime soon. Brilliant. Thank you. Right. Let's start with on your uh, secret resume journey. Your first thing that you can talk about is your family and the environment that you grew up in over to you yeah so it's what I it was interesting to do this exercise and I like I said before I was really interested to be prompted by you ahead of coming on the show to think about this to think about the secret resume and what I did actually the picture of my brain that I sent you was I kind of plotted my life up to this point and I tried to follow those three threads the the leading with honor thread the creativity thread and the coaching thread and find you know where were the places so the things we're going to talk about really in the end I was like, how do you choose five key moments from a life? Because I know that all the moments of a life have the potential to be the key moments. And some of it's just storytelling. And some of it, of course, is impact. And, and, and there are some, not all, not all moments are equal. And I imagined that I was, I really wanted to come up with a series of things that, that weren't the obvious things. But in a way, one's family upbringing is the obvious thing. And yet when I slowed down with those three things, it's impossible for me not to think about those first years of my life. Um, and in some ways, for me, this this goes on a little longer than for other people would, because I was home educated until I was nine. So it means that my family upbringing really it extends that long. It's a nine year period for me where my mum and dad and later my sister when she was born and my half brother who lived somewhere else, but visited us a lot and uncles and aunts and, 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 and these people, they were the kind of grand grandparents. They were the they were like, you know, a very formative piece of life for me um, without some of the um, dilution that say going into school at a, a speech marks normal age would have would have given to that and they were absolutely full of those three when i slow down and think about it of those three those three things the coaching was there in in sometime in like 
not obvious ways in some ways, but, but still quite obvious ways. Both my parents at different times in their life had done psychotherapy training. My mum, not at that period, but at the end of that period and from the end of that period till her retirement worked as a counsellor. And so I was surrounded really by that, by presence, by open questions, by um, encouraging of curiosity from them. And as time goes on, you know, for example, I went to my, one of my uncles died recently. I went to his funeral and at that funeral, one of his kind of mentees gave a speech and talked about the, the absolute coaching that he had done with her in a way that I wouldn't have spotted necessarily. I didn't know that part of him. In fact, it was fun. It's one of the fun things about a funeral is that you get to learn sometimes new things about somebody who's, you know, who you thought you knew quite well. You don't hear that phrase very often. One of the fun things about a yeah. funeral. I, get, I mean, it was fun is probably a strange way to say it, but it was fun. Like, it, And well, it was exciting and it was very touching to have so, so my uncle Martin, I'll just tell this story because it's it so new to us. So I knew he, he'd worked in transport his whole life. It went, since he was a little boy, he was fascinated by buses. And he ended up working for Stagecoach, the big UK bus company, amongst others. He would, in, right until his near his death, he was consulting at the EU about transport and things like that. Kind of knew that, but never really thought about that he might have been impactful. And at his funeral, this woman who now is the CEO of Travel Line, and people can look up to see what that does, what they do, but it's really interesting. Um, gave this speech. And one of the things she said is that uh, another colleague of theirs once walked into the office of the CEO of Stagecoach um, at the time, who was in there with my Uncle Martin, dreaming up a new branch of their business, which became Megabus, which is like a staple thing for students yeah. in the UK. So it's like these things that you just don't know people were doing. But Martin also really supported, encouraged, challenged this woman and many other people around him quietly. You know, they, they talked about him as the unsung hero of, of like British transport or of the bus, in, the bus industry in the UK. And that's a coach, right? It's the unsung hero behind the scenes who doesn't take the glory, but does all this facilitative work. So I didn't know that about him until, until like uh, two weeks ago, but it's like, there's some more of it. And my brother once pointed out, or my mum, my, my family, you know, around us were these people who did this kind of thing. My grandma wrote essentially, I mean, kind of a bit more spiritual than this, but she wrote some basically self-help books. And she's called Dorothy Lewis. People can look her up on, on Amazon. It's a really lovely book of visualizations that, that she wrote. My granddad on my dad's side was a, who I never knew, but whose personality definitely came out through his sons, was a leading Navy physical training instructor until he died very young. So he was developing people at that time. My other grandfather was a, was a vicar. You know, essentially vicars were the coaches of their communities. Um, maybe one of the reasons we need coaching so much now is no one talks to their vicar anymore. But um, so I had all these people around me with that coaching feel. So that was happening. Creativity was really encouraged. And people like Martin, who I mentioned, were around. He made a lot of music in his life. That was happening in different ways through my, through my parents and very much invited for us. And the, the things I was interested in through that time, a lot of it had to do with this concept of honor. Like I would read books about King Arthur, about Robin Hood, uh, moved into as I got towards the end of that period, superheroes started to emerge as a, as a theme. And that's, you know, that's those, those classic, you know, the, the classic Spider-Man scene, right? Is that he lets somebody go by when he could have stopped them and he doesn't. And he has to live with the consequences of that. And that's that that was, you know, in the moment, that's not the right thing to do. And the moral of the story and the whole of Spider-Man's arc comes from that moment. So there was, these stories were there and the creativity was there and uh, that space to think and be curious and follow interest was there too. Did that change when you went into mainstream school? How was it different? Well, it was, it was very, very hard. 
That's the first thing I would say. I think it's uh, been doing some learning recently about, you know, it's a model of child development and, and just how I think actually, you know, that's a, and I watch it with my, I've got a two-year-old daughter, right? I have to be really careful with her and the way I think about her and going into nursery, for example, because I can't help but think of how hard it was for a nine-year-old to go into formal schooling age nine when everyone else had been in school since they were four or five. That's really different to a two-year-old going off to play around in a nursery. And yeah, it has brings back a lot of the same, a lot of the pain that I had then now. So it was difficult. Now, there were some great things that came of it because I thrived in education in the end. Although, and I, I academically, I always thrived in it. And that wasn't really the problem, but socially and emotionally, I found it very hard, you know, and in the end, it's one of the formative experiences of my life because I learned to, how do you fit in? And it's like, you know, the reason you have to do that when you're nine is because if you don't, you get picked on. But that's a useful thing to be able to connect with people. That's how I, I learned that really. And yeah, but that, when I look back on that time, I, of course, I look back on it idyllically and there were reasons that it came to an end and we didn't have much money and we didn't see each other all the time. And there were all these things going on, but it did have that for, for, for the, from the point of view of allowing me to flourish does when I look back, does feel pretty idyllic. And yeah, there were, there were practical challenges and some of those things were less I guess they were less in evidence in formal education in the same way. You know, I don't think much formal education has much of a coaching spirit to it. Not in my experience. Albeit some wonderful teachers, you know, fly in the face of that. And I had some absolutely wonderful teachers and they did in different ways encourage creativity. I had this memory. I think it was, I think it was from, from, from thinking about this, this conversation that actually, I, you know, so for example, at some point, maybe we, maybe many of us have this. I think, you know, the sociologist Brené Brown would say that we, almost all of us end up with a creativity story from our early education, the story being, you are not creative, <laughs> from someone's throwaway remark. And I definitely had that story from a teacher called Mrs. Ramsey. And there's a funny bit in my first book about how I realized that I had uh, misremembered quite badly some of the things she'd said. But I also remember one of those really early days at school when it was just emotionally way too much for me to take. And I was so sad. And she just let me sit in the little cupboard at the corner of the classroom and draw. And so there were these moments like that. And, you know, it's easy. It's a funny thing to think that when she asked me, what do I like to do? I said, draw, because I certainly, by the time I was, I don't know, 12, would have said that, that drawing and visual art and that kind of thing was the least of my talents. I'm interested in quite a lot of the people who've been on the podcast have what their parents thought they should do for a living has played a, an important part, either conforming to that or rebelling against it. And I'm curious for you, how that played out for you. Yeah, I think I was lucky. I don't think I had it in the way that some people really have it. There were little echoes of it. Like I had this very strange, like very strange memory, like in my late twenties, I found myself very like quite jealous and feeling quite strangely, uh, like well, out of proportion, intense feelings about this guy that I'd met who was moving into coaching and had been a kind of big shot barrister. I couldn't work out what that was. And then I realized, then I had this memory of my mum saying, you're so good at arguing, Robbie, you should be a lawyer or you could be a lawyer, which is like, a, in some ways is a wonderfully encouraging thing to say. But I caught, just to echo what you're saying, I think many of us have, it's really hard as a parent, sort of terrifying thing to think as a parent, that almost without doubt, I'm going to say some things to my daughter at some point that she's going to remember in her late 20s or 30s and go, oh, this is why I messed up in some way. <laughs> it's dad's fault. You know, so I think that's true. So, so there, were, there were echoes like that. I mean, my brother, sister and I all had periods. Mine was in some ways the shortest of pursuing careers in the traditional arts. And so I don't think that my mum and dad ever said you should be an artist, but that tells me something about what was encouraged and admired 
in our family. And so, so there's that. But I didn't have the thing that uh, must be a doctor or something like that. And I guess the other thing that I, that I, again, we might get to it a little bit later on, I think probably, but somehow more by the way my parents lived, I learned some lessons. So they lived, they, they chose, they made choices that told me that work wasn't everything, money wasn't everything, uh, possessions weren't everything, and that there were other things that were meaningful. And, and I think they taught me like, some, from somewhere I got some sense of idealism about what work could be. Um, or, or what life could be, you know, that it shouldn't be. This is one of the themes I think that that, that comes out of this for me, out of this this work that that I've been thinking about ahead of this call is that that it must it must have been seeded there somehow. Although I can't remember anything explicit about that, but because they made, I guess what they did is they they constantly showed me that you can make choices that aren't the the expected choices, you know, which is two very smart people choosing to not have big corporate careers, you know, choosing not to, choosing to home educate their children. My dad lived in a commune for a while. Like they did all these things. You know, my mom did most of a PhD and then stopped it. You know, it's like, there's, there's all these stories that showed me that, that, yeah, it doesn't have to be the, the thing that everyone does. You don't have to do it. And that's, that's interesting. I love that. I love, I've always felt that about myself, actually, that I've not, necessarily felt the need to conform but I don't know where that's come from because I don't think it's come from my family but yeah I've never really felt that need to do what everyone else is doing I think it's good to have that like I mean we need some people like that otherwise nothing will change to some extent right we'll all just do the normal thing the whole time I had a, I had a client recently I'm not gonna be able to do it justice it's better in his language but one of the commitments that he was working towards was I want to sometimes purposefully do things that disrupt the normal way life would go that was one of the, the kind of things that felt really important to him. And I, I love it. every time he, he, we, we talk about that. I love it because it's like, yes, it just gives you that just gives, I imagine for him, certainly if, if it was me saying that in those moments where you get the choice, there might be the, you know, what is it? The, is it frost, the road less traveled? The, um, you know, it's like you get the choice between the, the way that things would normally go and this little part of you that's saying, maybe I should go the other way and do this crazy thing over here. And you just get that from that kind of commitment that the client made. It's like, ah, Maybe this time I'll just go there. I'll go the other way. Nice. I love that. So let's move to your second thing, which is a person who has inspired you. Tell me about him. Yeah. I, I'm always a bit careful of this now. So a strange, a strange thing. So we're going to talk about Frank Turner, the English singer-songwriter. And a strange end to this story is that Frank got married to one of my wife's friends from university. Like not someone that we know very well, but at some point in, in that, I realized it's like, I have to be a bit careful because I might end up, it's, very, it's pretty unlikely because they've moved to like Essex somewhere and we've moved to the West Midlands, but I might end up actually hanging out with him. So I have to be a bit careful to not to be too fanboyish. There isn't, <laughs> there isn't as much Frank Turner stuff up on my walls um, as there used to be. Yeah, I mean, but, but when I was thinking about, in a way it was, when I was thinking about those, again, those three themes, we are a product of the people we surround ourselves with to some extent. And we get a choice about that. And we'll come back to that again a little bit later. It's especially true of the, the novelist David Gemmell for me as well. Yeah, so in about 2007, uh, my friend Steve made me a CD. And it, it was a good CD with one song I just kept listening to, which was this kind of shouty, acoustic man with an English accent called Frank Turner, who had been the, the singer in a punk band that my friend Steve really loved called Million Dead. And then that band had gone to bits and he had started a different um, thing. And there, there were just so many parts of the of, of why Frank... And then I listened to Frank Turner like a lot for a long time, you know, for probably, what, 10 years after that. 
maybe a little longer, maybe kind of 12, um, would 12 years of like a lot of listening. I, I, I would get, I haven't totaled it for a while. I guess I've been to 30, see him live 30 plus times, which is easier for him than for some people because he's always on tour. And there are a few things. Yeah, so there are a few things. So I think that like, there was one thing which was, he was kind of being exactly the singer songwriter that if I had been a singer songwriter, I would have wanted to be. And on, that didn't have the effect that it some, those kind of things sometimes have, which is like the, the gutting, oh, someone else has done it. It was just inspiring because it was like, there was this sense for me, still is, that actually I was never going to do it as in this way as well as he did, right? The, the lyrics that he was writing were just, were just way beyond any of the lyrics I'd ever written because I'd, I'd done some songwriting and it was just something that he had. Now, I don't know if that's actually true, but it was because this is kind of admiration more than anything else. And he did the thing that many great lyricists do, which is make you feel like, he's writing about you somehow hold kind of big enough soul to allow all of us into the, into the music. And you could tell that I'm not the only one because, because if you go to a gig at, you know, anywhere as big as Wembley arena is probably the biggest place I've seen him and tiny little places. Like I once went to a gig of his in, in Lancaster library. Now this is not a pub called the library. This is the actual library in Lancaster where I knew where I grew up. There was some kind of, there was some kind of, council initiative and frank's deal at the time was when he was starting out was i will play anywhere as long as i get 50 pounds or more and somewhere to sleep and there was this commitment right which which was i will which was essentially i will keep showing up and i will keep doing this as well as i possibly can because i love it and because it's the right way to be and because i know deep in me that it's the right is the thing that i should be doing and then i will essentially trust the universe after that. And so, and I was with him through that whole time, basically, not quite from the start, because it was just before his second album came out that Steve gave me the thing, the first, and we first went to watch him live. But essentially then I was with him through to, you know, I remember being at a gig in Shepherd's Bush where he said, I once made a deal. My manager once promised me that if we ever played, I can't remember if it was 2,000 or 3,000 person show, he'd do a stage dive. And this is the first 2,000 or 3,000 person show. And then in, in dives the manager. And I was there when he played at the O2 which is again, like an un, unthought of scale when you've watched him in Lancaster Library. So there was that, there was the sense, there was the sense of control what I can control, do what I know to be the right thing, keep doing it. That was there. What is it about him and his lyrics that really speak to you? I mean, on some level, it's a courageous, vulnerable description of the human experience. We were talking just before we switched on uh, the recording about some lyrics from a song called, is it called Telltale Signs, I think which is this absolutely raw opening of the heart and one of the, yeah, one of my favorite all-time songs. But he's also a writer of, he also captured a moment for me. And this is really why he belongs on this list. He captured a moment of, and then I was able to follow him my with my trajectory following alongside very closely from just, just a vision, just an idealistic vision that if I, Frank, show up and keep playing and keep doing the best that I can, that's the right thing to do. There's a song called Photosynthesis. I remember sharing it with a friend and, and she was like, about a week later, she emailed back and said, at first I just thought it was a bit dull. And I was like, why have you sent this? And then I listened to the words and now I can't stop listening to it. And Photosynthesis is about, again, it's capturing that theme of work can be something more. There's a verse which is, no one's yet, yeah, no one's yet explained to me exactly what's so great about slaving 50 years away on something that you hate, about meekly shuffling down the path of mediocrity. If that's your road, then take it but it's not the road for me. Capturing that aged, what, 25 as I was at the time, something like that. Still interested in acting at the time. So it's like, 
this is like a hard thing that I might be going to try and do professionally. You know, and that wasn't the path in the end for me, but this is, and, and where I've ended up is here. But having that Telltale Signs and the album that that came out was a, was a like, is an incredible breakup album. Um, and it happened to me just as my relationship with my university girlfriend had ended. And so I was able to kind of be in that space of like life being destroyed because of a, you know, feeling destroyed because of a relationship ending uh, with that and, and many other things. But he also has a kind of, well, maybe there's two more parts of it. So there's also uh, an undoubted optimism. Uh, the other, another great song for people to check out would be Get Better, um, which is a song about the, the darkest times, but remembering there's still hope in those times. And also, I mean, maybe this is maybe this is slipping a little away from the lyrics and a little more into what's created in the live shows. He became very aware of what he was doing. He became aware that it was something really special. Maybe he always knew this, but once it started to really happen, once everybody started to learn the words and sing, he became really aware of how special it is to have 2,000, 3,000, 10,000 people together singing songs about meaningful, living a meaningful life and what makes life important. And so in 2016, when I don't know if anyone remembers, the world went weird, he released an album called Be More Kind. And when um, just after COVID, when I went to the, some gigs he did at the Roundhouse in, in London, the kind of the first gig back, it was kind of stressful. Like I had to, I got so claustrophobic in the queue for the bar, I had to go outside because we'd been locked down and out of crowds for so long. And yet when we all sang in a world that has decided that it's going to lose its mind. Be more kind, my friends. Try to be more kind. Like, you know, I could see he was in tears. There was this amazing moment, right? It's a transcendent moment, those kind of things. And so it is the poetry, and it's, but it's also this sense that we can come together in those moments and speak about the open heart, the optimism, the idealism. And it's, yeah, it's quite something, really. That really touches me, that idea of singing. You know, I'm not at all religious, but I absolutely can see how singing hymns together is such a transformational experience for people I once went on and this was in Glastonbury not the festival the place went to us like a sound healing workshop but it was singing and I can't sing despite being called Melody I'm inappropriately named but it was amazing to be in a room it was the first time I'd ever been in a room apart from at a gig with a bunch of people singing and the kind of the, I don't know like the energy that's created between people who you, I didn't know them it was all a bunch of hippies, basically. It was incredible. I, I, it was a long time ago, and it still really, really sticks in my mind as something that I did that was utterly random that I went for this weekend to do it, but learned something about the joy of of that kind of collective making of noise. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I mean, it might have also been because it was that, that gig in, in 2021, I think, at the Roundhouse, actually. It might have been because it was also our first night the first time, the furthest way we'd ever been, I think, from our daughter. But it was also because we were in a room with 3,000 people singing these songs together. My wife and I were like, it was a, it was a high, right, to do that. And, and the, you know, there's lots more I could say about Frank Turner. And I, yeah, I would just invite people. Like, I, I used to think that, like, you know, I would try and share it with people. And, and for, like, I don't know what it is, 19 out of 20 people that hear me say all this stuff and go and listen to Frank, they'll be like, what is he on about? What is this like shouty, you know, dull guitar music? And then one in 20 might just might have their life changed. Um, so it's worth it's worth saying. But one of the things I was remembering on the when I was thinking about this as well is it was actually at a Frank gig and, and his wife, Jess, was who, who's uh, Emma's my wife, Emma's friend, was supporting that gig. I think it was between their set. I, it was when I looked around the room, Emma had gone to the bar or the bathroom. And, and I had the thought to myself, I remember writing it in an email to myself. Let's this is a note for me. Let's Robbie, let's make something that gets people creating. 
And so in a way, like the, the, the 12 minute method books were on the way at that point, but they, in a way that was the moment as well. So that has quite a, because that moment was quite important. I think it was in a way for me, a flag in the sand of like, even though lots of other people have done this, including Frank, right? And some of his songs, encouraging people to do the thing that they can do, you know, the, to make art because it matters, was a flag in the sand for me to do that as well because it you know part of the reason again we admire other people is because they they do things that we believe in too well we probably project parts of ourselves onto them right let's move to your next thing which is waking up in the workplace yeah it's a bit of a gear change in some ways so like my like i said i had a half brother and so we have this wonderful relationship which is we were never on top of each other as kids enough to fight like we basically never fought and we were great friends and we're now we've rekindled that by um in the last few years we're talking as much now as we ever have even though he lives in the netherlands and i was a bit absent from this weird work that he was doing because he'd quite interested he was always interested in slightly weird off-piste things again as you might expect from somebody with weird off-piste family and he was doing some weird stuff i didn't really understand about a philosopher called ken wilbur and um these other things but he then him and his friends made this thing which was waking up the workplace and it was an interview series before everyone was making interview series like i maybe there were some other people doing it but i'd never come you know now you get an email every week saying come and sign up for my free interview series it'll change your life and it's kind of mailing list it's like a it's like one of those annoying things that people get taught is how you build a mailing list which it probably is but they made this before that was a thing and I didn't listen to, and then it, rather embarrassingly, I was at, I was at, in Amsterdam with you and some of his friends, including one of the friends that had made this with, and they were talking about it. And it's like a year after it had come out and I hadn't listened. And I was a bit embarrassed at that point. Like, I was like, what is this? And, you know, it has, that has kind of become a thing for me. It's like, how do you, usually I, I was actively supportive of the people I cared about and somehow this had just totally passed me by. So I listened to it in the car. I was driving to and from the art center that I was managing at the time. I'm across Yorkshire and like I had an hour each way every day pretty much. And I listened to it probably over the space of a month and it had a huge impact. And the frame of the interview series was about conscious business which is something I'd never really heard about before. There was, there was a conscious capitalism movement at that time, which was inspired by John Mackey of Whole Foods and some others. And, and the name, the phrase conscious business had been taken from a book by Fred Kaufman, who again, we might come back to. Essentially, it was, what if business can be about more than just profit? And what came out of it, I don't think they said this, but they may have, was, well, what if work actually, they would, they would start every interview by asking, what is work to you? And, you know, really it was, what if work can be and business is not just a thing you have to do to make money mm. but is can be a full expression of of who you are and what you have to give and be the way that you make a difference in the world so it's it's the lyrics from photosynthesis right again in a different frame and space so there were a few things going on there one of them was it was the first time i heard the word coach in the way that it's talked about now because all the people asking the questions were coaches and i was like well, what? who are coaches and what are they and why are they all asking questions i found it quite annoying it definitely didn't make me want to be a coach so that was all going on it was a thing that my brother had made. And again, it's like an under, underrate, like a thing that I forget is I was surrounded. Throughout my life, I've been surrounded by family members making things. And I was one of those, but, but particularly my brother, my dad at different times, like I said, my uncle Martin, my other uncle John, like my mom, my aunt, like lots and lots of people making things. But this is the thing that you and his friends had made. And it was cool. That was one part of it. Like they were talking to some amazing people. I didn't, I'd never heard of any of these people. I have heard of them, quite a lot of them, quite a lot more now. But so that was happening. And it was this idea that what if work could be that thing, could be more, could be meaningful. 
in that way. Like, and I knew that, right? I was working in the, and I was working in the charity sector, essentially because that was what felt honorable to me. That was where the goodies were, as far as I was concerned. And business is where the baddies were. I know that sounds semi-ridiculous, but that's exactly what I thought. It was so black and white, it's embarrassing, right? But it's definitely what I thought. And then waking up the workplace happened. And there were these people on there who were obviously thoughtful, insightful, wise people. And some of them were saying, not only, this is interesting to me, not only could business be a place where you could make a difference in the world, but in some ways it was the uh, the way to make the biggest impact in the world. You know, And you can make that argument in lots of ways, but one way is purely scale. Like if, if you're a leader in, you know, actually a medium-sized organization, you know, I always laugh, think it's laugh when you have like, what size, you know, I'm filling in a form about my business. It's like, what size business are you? Small to medium is like, you know, a thousand to 50,000 people. And I'm like, well, it's me and some freelancers, you know, but it's like, you know, the, the business can be the place where there's this enormous possibility for impact. And so all of that together made quite an impact on me. And I think really did plant the seeds for leading with honor now. Because I, when I, when I moved, I went, I did this, then had this kind of break, like I said, when, well, I had, I had this breakup and then shortly after that and was listening to Frank being miserable and uh, being miserable myself. And as I came back from that into work again in a different place, I was looking for conscious businesses to work in and not really finding them. And, you know, in the end, I think, because that move, that movement didn't move as fast as I thought it would, but it is moving now. And I think it's also, it's like, it's a part of what, it's a part of what I aspire to be a part of really. I was coaching a senior leader in a very well-known global brand the other day and he was saying, you know, we're talking about diversity and some of the challenges around diversity and inclusion. And he said, oh, you know, we can make a difference in our own organisation, but, you know, these people have experiences that are outside of the organisation. I don't think we can do anything about that. And I just said, I disagree. I said, I think your brand has the ability to change the world. You know, they're a global, well-known brand they they absolutely can and should be looking to to influence the way that people think and behave and treat each other that makes me think of um, one of my mentors a man who inspires me very much robert holden he has you can you can find that he's done a lot of work with dove and he's oft he loves to tell a story and it's a very inspiring the real beauty campaign at dove people can go look that up watch some of the videos but it's like it's and, and you know he does work these days i've heard him talk about working on environmental things with you know dove and those companies as well and it's it's it is possible and some people take that really bold position now it's not easy you know and i've worked with lots of leaders in organizations and being a leader of small organizations myself. And I know that make, doing those things is not easy. And I think that's the leading with honor thing. So sometimes if people ask me, what's the definition of honor? Well, it's doing the right thing, even when it's hard. Mm. I think it's particularly difficult when you have shareholders and reporting to the market and all of that. I, you know, that's been my experience of working both in, you know, listed and not listed companies is the listed companies they're so aware of that, the shareholders and the analysts and the market, and and it drives a particular risk-averse behaviour, I would say. Yeah, and I think, you know, what's interesting is what I remember, and again, I'm not an expert on this, I think you've been a lot closer to it than I have, and although I've had some clients that are, it's, you know, it's, it's not often that I've been in the, these conversations with people at the very top of those kind of organisations, um, if, if ever, actually. But I think what I remember about waking up the workplace, again, it's that idealism. Is, is interesting, isn't it? It's like, well, what do you do about that? If you're the person in that place, what do you do about it? Is it really possible? A bit like you challenged the, the person, is it really true that even under those pressures, people can't be stepping in the right direction instead of letting things slip in the wrong direction? It's like, I remember somebody telling me that 
the story of Enron wasn't like everybody setting out to be hugely corrupt. It's just everybody compromising like their integrity, you know, 1% at a time until the whole thing is sustained on fraud. So what it takes is everybody to not compromise their integrity would be my hypothesis. And uh, if you're a leader of a multinational corporation and want to hire me to test that out, that would be fun. (laughs) Let's do that. That's brilliant. Anything else on the, um, is it waking up in the workplace or waking up the workplace? Waking up the workplace. Okay. Um, All those both. I think that was the play on words, right? It's like, you know, how do we wake up the workplace for, so that we can wake up in it, but also how do we wake it up so that it's something new? Um, Anything else on that? I mean, just the, one of the thoughts I've had recently, and I, again, I haven't, the leading with honor thing, it's not really in my branding. It's not really a business thing that's out there. It's just a way that I think about my business now. But I think when I listened to Waking Up the Workplace, I wanted somebody to um, already be, have listened to that, be running an organization that I could step into and be part of something like that. I just didn't really find it. I found a few, but they weren't the people, like it, there wasn't a way into it for me. And what's ended up happening is me taking lots of the ideas from people who were on in those interviews and more. And using that in my work so that the way I didn't end up working in a conscious business, but in a way I am working in conscious business because I'm talking about the ideas of, you know, I'm still reading Tammy Simon's newsletters sometimes, and I'm still talking about the ideas that Tony Schwartz or, or Fred Kaufman talked about in, in the interviews on on that show and still remember, remembering those things. The weird thing is if people want to listen to Waking Up the Workplace, actually, I'm speaking to my brother directly after this, maybe I'll have, I'll have a go about it, but um, you have to kind of download MP3s to listen to it because it's not on iTunes or anywhere. So it's like, cause it was, cause it, cause it predates Apple Podcasts. It predates, you know, Spotify, you know, really, cause it was as a, as a, certainly as a podcast platform. Yeah. So it is, it is pretty old school. Love that. I'm definitely going to go and listen to those. Right, let's move on to your next one, which is creating the wisdom of David Gemmel website. Yeah. I mean, there's so much in this. This is like, um, this is the true geeky side of me. So, right, if, if King Arthur and Robin Hood started those that, that honour storytelling and then Spider-Man and the X-Men and Batman took that over, there was a point where it moved into reading fantasy novels in different ways and and absolutely this is so funny i think about this a lot a fundamentally key moment in my life is do you remember on the back of things like the radio times there used to be these book clubs advertised don't mm-hmm. you remember this where it's like really cheap books on the back and then it was because you had to keep buying from the book club after those cheap books yeah but basically the offer on the back of one of these ones was so good for a really amazing edition of lord of the rings it was like two pounds for a book that was only 40 pounds that we signed up for it, me and my mum. And we got that and we got a 50p beautiful version of The Hobbit. And then we had to get some other things over the next few months. And one of the things we got was four books by a, a British novelist called David Gemmell. And it is no small, it is no exaggeration to say, again, another creator who absolutely changed my life. And I read them and thought they were great. And then I kept reading them over the next, over many years. And And at some point I had this thought, it was actually about something else, but a bit like I was saying about, you know, we become who we're surrounded by. In fact, the thought I had was, why do I never celebrate success very well? Why do I always move on to the next thing? And then I wondered if it was because I was a Manchester United fan and I'd watched Sir Alex Ferguson be interviewed so many times. And, you know, he famously, I can't remember, I'm going to get it a bit wrong. He famously said, someone said, you know, how long are you going to, you're going to savor this? It might've been a European cup win. How long are you going to savor this European cup win? And how long before you start thinking about the next one? He says, I'll savor it for about five minutes something like that. And that's that's why he won more trophies than anybody else ever. Um, but is that, you know, I was like, I've been surrounded by that. Maybe that's why I have that attitude somewhat. And I thought, who else have I been surrounded by for a long time? And I realized I'd read, I'd probably read all of David Gemmell's books three times, some of them more by this point. And I was like, that's a lot. 
And one of the things you'll find if you read a lot of David Gemmell's books is there are a lot of repeating motifs. So he doesn't even have, you know, you've seen an interview with him where he doesn't even have any, um, he's not even worried remotely about that. He's totally happy that that's, that's how it is because it's, you know, he used to love reading cowboy books where it was essentially the same story, but that didn't stop them being great. And so there were a lot of, the, but there were a lot of these repeating motifs and ideas. And, you know, a lot of them were, you know, because he had a stepfather in his life who was very impactful on him. A lot of them were these kind of surrogate father to surrogate son relationships, old man to young man relationships, teaching the young man how to live and how to live with honor, essentially, how to do the right thing, what really matters. And I think if you, f if you follow fantasy, that's often what the stories are about. They're often about, you know, they're often about the hero's journey. They're often about personal transformation in quite explicit ways. They're often they're metaphor. You know, they're, they're often heavy metaphor, deliberately or otherwise, by the authors. You know, I think, again, David Gemmell had no, he, he died in 2006, but he, I don't think he had any qualms about saying, like, I, I think, again, I've seen him say, if there was one thing that could come from my books, it's that more people would act like heroes. So it's like, you know, he even knew it. But they're brilliant reads, right? Like if you like, you know, they're page turners. Uh, one of my ex-girlfriends in, in a fantastically sort of back backhanded way said, Robbie just gave me this incredibly trashy, brilliant book, um, which is kind of a great way to describe David Gemmell when you, you know, although I was probably hurt by it at the time. And so then this other thing had happened, right? Which is that uh, so this is like uh, by then I've had this idea for a while now. Let's say it, this is in 2012, 2013, 20. Actually, by the time the website was created, probably 2015, I'd had this idea for maybe five years at this point, which is you could make, you should pull out all the wisdom from these books and it would be a cool little book that you could have mm -hmm. or something like that. You know, like you get like the little book of Dalai Lama wisdom. You could have a little book of David Gemmell wisdom. And I'd done nothing about it. And I'd also seen, this wasn't the only like speech marks in my view, great idea that I'd had, but I'd seen the two others disappear. I'd let them go. There's a great, we were talking a little bit about Liz yes. Gilbert earlier on, and, and she has this amazing bit in Big Magic. She talks about how the idea, if you don't snatch the idea when it's there, it'll go on to somebody else and they'll do it. And I had these two absolutely, I mean, it's, it's mind blowing what happened, right? I had this idea of a book about a computer game. It was a great idea for a book. And I let myself get talked out of it by a friend of a friend who said, I like the game, but I'd never buy the book. And I let myself, that, I, let, I let that stop me completely. The reason I know it's a great idea for a book is somebody else wrote it, got it published, and it was very, very successful. So it's like a great idea that I'd let go. And then I had this other idea about a website, a website business idea. And I didn't know this when I was creating The Wisdom of David Gemmell, but I let it go again. I, I kind of looked it up online and someone had done something a bit similar. And I decided that was enough to stop it. Later on, my friend introduced me to the COO of the company that I had dreamed up. So again, the, 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 the idea had gone on to something else. And I kind of knew that these ideas had gone. And, but I, but this, the reason this story is really important for me is the first time I really beat what Stephen Pressfield calls resistance. So I had this bizarre story going on. I was like, I don't want to do anything with this because if I do, someone might steal the idea. Like I might lose it again. When in fact, not doing anything about the ideas was why I'd lost those other two. And, and I had this um, conversation with my friend Inga, coaching session, really at a workshop that we went to. It was the first time we'd met and now we're, we're, we're still in touch years later. And Inga asked me this great question, which is, because I had all these excuses for not making the website. You know, by this point, it could be a website, it could be a book, whatever. And she said, look, how many people would need to have an impact? Would, would this, would need to like be invited to the same impact that this had on you by your website for it to be worth you making it? Because I was like, well, no one will read it was one of the many excuses I have for not doing it. And then she really turned the knife because she said, because I've got a 14-year-old son, something like that, at home. 
and like it's speaking to me as though it might speak to him. Of course, that's the real knife turned because for me at that point, I know the only... The, Don't let my son down. Right, exactly. The only answer to that question is one person, right? If one person, like it, the amount of impact that, that that work had on me, only one person needs to, only one person needs to feel even a fraction of that for it to be worth me making a website. And so I made that website in the end and I made it using essentially what became the 12 minute method. You know, it's, you know, I didn't call it that at the time and it was before my blog, which is where the 12 minute method came from, but it was... I'm overwhelmed by this because I had like, I, over these five years, I had on my next reread of David Gemmell's books, I'd collected all the quotes. So I already had the spreadsheet at this point. I just hadn't taken any action. I was wrapped in procrastination, all these things. And I, what I did in the end was I, I just have to do one at a time, don't I? I'll do one at a time for now, then at least it'll be started. And I just scheduled weekly wisdom email number 360 something. So 360 odd weeks. I did in the middle of a house move and some family stuff last year. I did miss quite a few weeks, but, you know, accepting those weeks, like some, something of the order of the last 360 something weeks, someone has received an email with a, with a David Gemmell quote. And there's a website with many, many on it and it exists now. And so that's important because it, I got some coaching on it. It was one of the first real impacts of coaching on me. And um, it's important because I made a thing despite all the procrastination, despite all of the reasons that we don't make things, which were definitely present in that. People want a kind of longer version of that story. They can check out. There's an episode of the 12 Minute Method podcast where I talk about it. You know, and it's like, it's about honor. So the reason that leading with honor later came to me was because I was thinking, how do I make my work contain all the things that I'm about? Right? Because in the end, if I'm going to do the absolute best work and have the biggest impact that I can, I'm going to want all parts of me to be part of it. And I realized two things. I never talked about the wisdom of David Gemmell when I was talking about my work, ever. And I had some values that really mattered to me. And I talked about three of them a lot. And the fourth one, honor, I never mentioned. And it's like, well, that's got to stop, hasn't it? So at that point, that's where, the, for the first time, that's when the seeds of what if leading with honor was a thing for me uh, emerged. So it sounds like it's two, it's multiple things, isn't it? It's the content of this honour being central, but unspoken to that point. And then also this just you applying this, what became the 12 minute method and using that and that sort of anti-procrastination thing that's a core part of what you talk about as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that bit, that second part is, is can't be understated, really. It's not that it was the first thing I'd ever made. But in this phase of my life, as an adult, you know, I think my friend, Joe Hunter, who's a real inspiration to me, she runs a company called 64 Million Artists, um, who I do some work with now, and which is about uh, catalyzing creativity for businesses for um, individuals. Yeah, she, she talks about it too, about sometimes, you know, a creative child, stops being creative adult, runs into stories about perfectionism, has these all this stuff that locks them up and traps them and holds them back from creativity through perfectionism, through all these kinds of fears and ways that we get in our own way. And in a way, the, the wisdom of David Gemmell was my first, almost, I mean, maybe starting my business was and, and the career change, but this was a really explicit creating just for the sake of creating, just because it's the right thing to do, not knowing how it will go, not knowing where it will end or what it's for, because creating a thing is a thing we can do in the 21st century and make it reach people because of the internet and because it's the right, you know, I'm really, I'm really being called to create it. So that kind of thing, it really, the 12 minute method piece, the beating procrastination, finally doing the things we've been meaning to do, that really captured all that for me. Brilliant. Thank you. Right. Final one. I love this. It's time for you to die. Yeah, it was an article. So by this point, uh, so about a year after I started The Wisdom of David Gemmell, I started my blog, which people who don't know, just really quickly, it was about 
me procrastinating and feeling like every time I shared something, um, it was agonizing. And me and my coach designed a practice where I'd write on the train at first, later for 12 minutes with a timer, write an article while the train's moving or the timer's going, stop when it stops, proofread it once, post it online as a way to practice just making something and sharing it. And about one of the things I say in my third book, How to Create the Conditions for Great Work, is um, which, of which It's Time for You to Die, which is a, uh, is a chapter of, is that feels really important because it was a really, it was a piece of great work. Like I can really see that looking back and I could feel it in the moment actually, but it came two years into practicing writing articles in that way. So it's like practicing is, does matter, <laughs> is, is a part of the story. That's a part of why this matters. Essentially, I'd um, been reading a book by Fred Kaufman, who'd been a guest on Waking Up the Workplace. He'd written the book Conscious Business. And then his next book had come out, which is called The Meaning Revolution, which I still think is one of the most complete leadership books that I've come across incredibly practical but also deep i'd recommend it like if i'd worked in an organization like a big organization that's the book i'd want to read to help me cope better and lead better and i'd read that and one of the chapters is called die before you die which is uh, from i think an old zen proverb maybe die before you die so that you can truly live and i'd read that i was been reading about that and then i found myself with a coaching client one of the things Kaufman says in one of those chapters, in, in that chapter, in that book, is he tries to remember that before every coaching session that he does, because that means he he stops, like he starts to think, well, what if this is the last time I ever speak to this client? Like, I don't want to be holding back. I don't want to be risking that I don't get the chance to say the important thing or reflect the important thing to them. And I went into a coaching session with one of my clients having read that, and it absolutely reinvigorated that, that coaching engagement. It was a very, very powerful call that the two of us had and I came out of that and I sat and I needed to write a 12-minute article and so I sat down and I set my time over 12 minutes and I wrote it about that idea that we have to die before we die so that we can truly live and there's so much in that there's so many like it, it wasn't just drawing on Kaufman's influence it was it was other people too and and in that was you know Kaufman quotes Braveheart Excellent. So there's an element of the, you know, one of the things William Wallace says, he says in Braveheart is, uh, what do you say? He says, every man dies, but not every man lives, right? It's like, you know, in Braveheart, again, it's that, it's that same thing, right? You can take our lives, but not our freedom. It's these same ideas. It's like, we, we actually, we can do the right thing, even though we're going to lose. And so I wrote this piece and I, and then something interesting happened, which is that my friend Jacinta, who works at a coaching company that I work for, knows Fred Kaufman. And she saw the article and she sent it to Fred. And so by the end of that day, Fred had commented on the article and shared it. And it had got, was already getting hundreds of, of reads. And it's now assigned reading on Fred Kaufman's Conscious Business Coaching course. Uh, they share that article that I wrote in 12 minutes, one afternoon in Battersea. With, with people who are learning about it because it, it really captured him. And that's magical to me because, you know, I mean, what, seven years earlier, I was listening, six years earlier, I was listening to Waking Up the Workplace thinking about this strange Argentinian man who lives in America, who'd written a book and was being interviewed on, on some pre-Zoom Zoom without video, I'm sure, by my brother and his friends, had now read and shared one of my articles and, not, like, and, and said it was a beautiful article, which had been written in 12 minutes, which is also slightly nuts, right? And so there was so much about that. But when I look back on it, it's also one of these absolutely, it's a principle that changes me completely to, to die before you die, to do the kind of exercises that, that he talks about in that art, that he talks about, that I talk about in the article, both the ones from, from Kaufman and from other people. That day, I think, having written the article, I, um, one of the things he says is in his, um, in his workshops when he's talking about that principle is he'll ask people, you know, if you only had three minutes to live, who would you call and what would you say? And he invites people to think about that. 
then he reminds them like you won't know almost certainly you won't mm -hmm. know most of us don't know when we've only got three minutes left to live and he says in the break after that whenever there's the next break there's always people on the phone right and i was thinking about it a lot and i, I think i posted the article and then i I thought about it. And so I phoned my wife and it was, it was a surreal, like I can remember it, like absolute crystal clarity. It felt like, you know, in a, in a movie where somebody's uh, gonna, got to fly the nuclear bomb into the volcano or whatever, and they call somebody at the last minute, they don't say. And like my wife was leaving her desk to go to like lunchtime yoga in her office or something. And I couldn't say at that point, I'm doing this exercise about who I would call with three minutes to live for exactly the same reason that they don't tell them on the phone to their wife and kids or husband and kids, whatever, when they're flying the plane into the volcano. It's like, there's just this, you know, I had tears streaming down my face. And yet the whole day was in Technicolor after that. And I remember walking to meet her and it invites that same, you know, that same live in the moment, do the right thing attitude that I think, you know, if we go back, Frank lives, that, that, that idealism from childhood, it invites all those same things. And it had this amazing, and it's a part of the 12 minute method. It's a part of now of that third book as well. I'm just writing loads of notes, actually. I'm just gonna, I'll be on Google. I said to you before, I don't know what I'd do without Google. Now you've just given me more things to Google. Thank you. Yeah, and I did warn you that I would be name checking many, many things because that's how I that's how I think of it and how I storytell and how I try and draw things together for myself. And what I'll do is I'll add some links in the notes um, from the episode as well so that people can access things if they don't love Google just quite as much as I do. What's next for you? It's a great question, really. Um, so I published four books in the space of just over a year last year, uh, ending at the end of 2022. And I, I had a project to appear on lots of podcasts, which is also why I ended up talking to you. So thank you so much for, for being part of that. So what's interesting is the work I'm doing with my coach at the moment is, is to really step away from essentially goal setting. So part of the way that I found that I had to, the things that I needed to do to beat procrastination and do projects off the scale of publishing those books was to be incredibly focused on what is important the tasks, the goal, the thing that is most important to me here and say no to a lot of other things. And actually I'm out of energy for that. So my, my coach, he likes the polarity of love and will. And so I've used up like all my will <laughs> getting all these things out and I need to really relax into the love energy instead. So for these six months, this first half of 2023, my most important task is to follow what's follow what I'm interested in and to see what emerges. So I don't really know what's next. I mean, I'm playing with some, a couple of interesting things that I'm interested in about marketing the books. I'm doing a few other things. My coaching business has like, grown actually in that time. I think it's just now it's got space or, or because the books are out and they're a good marketing tool or something There's that's going on. But in terms of a big thing, I mean, I guess talking about it today, I think there'll be some kind of leading with honor business thing that happens in my business at some point, but I don't quite know what that'll be. So, I, and it's nice to be in that place. There's a real, there's definitely a massive, it's very important, I think, for people, if they're, especially if they're kind of on their own business, to be able to use the will end of the polarity to really carefully avoid distractions and get things done. But sometimes it's also good to, to open to the other things, to the more intuitive piece, which of course, interestingly, the 12 minute writing practice does both, right? It sets aside structured, very structured time to like, I will write an article this week. And then in that, I get to let intuition run wild, which means that sometimes, I write a piece which I'm super proud of, like it's time for you to die. It's like planned spontaneity. Absolutely. You have to have the container around something. To, and that's what coaching is as well. It's like create a container in which someone's best thinking can happen. And creative practice is a, is a great way to do that. I was actually just having that conversation with my coach slash therapist. Uh, and 
I was saying that uh, for me, in the sort of quieter times, I do a lot of gathering of information and reading and all of the rest of it. But what actually causes it to kind of coalesce, I suppose, is the pressure of a deadline or, you know, and I think if I didn't have those, that the ideas wouldn't ever come together because they would just all swim around in my mind. But but what causes the, the great stuff to come out is some pressure. Um, and a, a goal and a focus. Yeah, definitely. Completely agree. Love it. Right. Uh, advice to your younger self. You, your younger self can be any age. What would your advice be? Well, as like as well as a, people can imagine, as well as a fantasy nerd, I also like am partial to some science fiction. So I've got to say, Melody, I'm wary of this question always. I have a very, I, I love my life, right? I, I don't want to disrupt the space-time continuum too much. Okay. It's, it's dangerous, is it? <laughs> there's, a, she, there's a slightly disturbing, it's quite funny, like working title type film with Bill Nye in it, I've forgotten what it's called, but maybe it's called like something a bit dull, like it's about time where a time traveler accidentally like changes his child yes. by changing something in the past. So he comes back and rather terrifyingly has a different baby, which yeah, we don't want that. So um, what would I say? I think the thing that I get pangs of regret about is I just didn't really believe the idea of practice. Like I didn't go to, I liked sport a lot. Why did I not play for any clubs really? I played for school, it's different sports, but. I was thinking last night, why did I never like play cricket? I really loved watching cricket. And the reason is I thought cricket clubs were for people who were good at cricket, um, which in a way they were. But I didn't know that if you went to cricket club, you might become good at cricket. And it's the most obvious thing in the world, but it's taken me, it took me like 35 years or something. It's about when I was 35, I read Bounce by Matt Syed. And it finally, it was a final nail in the, in the practice versus talent coffin to mix some metaphors there for me. So I think I would, if I could help my younger self be a bit more relaxed about being bad at things, and find ways to learn and enjoy learning, you know, even one or two years earlier to have that insight and absorb it. I would, I would take that for sure. Definitely. Brilliant. Thank you. And my last question is uh, strapline or title for your secret resume. It's been fun to quote Frank Turner lyrics, but I think I like, I think it should probably be, it's just such a powerful thing to really truly face our mortality. So let's, I think that the strapline is probably die before you die so that you can really live love it so thank you robbie i have thoroughly enjoyed today our conversation it's been a roller coaster of uh, i've literally been writing so many notes as we've been talking so thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, excellent therapy and coaching for me too <laughs> you're welcome you probably can tell that i could have talked to robbie for hours I loved our discussion about conscious business and if work could be meaningful and not just a way to make money and I think it's something that Robbie and I both share a passion for and also that ability of businesses and big brands to have an enormous impact in the world not just in making lots of money and selling lots of things but actually changing the way that people think and the way that they behave towards each other. He's the first of my guests to talk about how music has influenced him and certainly song lyrics and his talking about Frank Turner and, and that message of kindness really reminded me of that quote and I don't know where it's from, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Secret Resume. If you did, remember to like, share, comment and subscribe as that helps people like you find people like us.